live your life like tomorrow matters. Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Studying Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanizes them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Katie. And I'm Jade. And this is Future Studying. As I folded my bread this morning in the early morning light in complete silence except for those birds that twitter as daylight breaks, I contemplated really what this pod has become. And while on the face of it I know that it's just a weekly conversation, it feels like it's so much more than that to me anyway. It feels a bit like home actually. You know, familiar smells, old slippers, guaranteed herbal tea with a little bit of home harvested honey. And of course, for me, and I don't know if this is right for others, but a whole pile of crap that needs to be sorted through. While it's all that, and it sounds a bit bucolic and a bit cliched, it isn't really what I mean. At home, I feel safe. And from this place of safety and belonging, I've been able to let my guard down, pick at curiosity, follow tangents of thought, and, you know, really chew over the words that others have thrown at me, wondering whether to sew them into my own fabric or whether I should just piff them into the compost. While the recurring themes of our interviews are overlapping for sure, and at times this makes me wonder whether we've created a bell jar of solidarity and sameness, I can also see where our conversations have differentiated and thrown a challenge in my corner to decipher, and I have loved that. For that it's felt safe, it's felt empowering, and it's felt like there's been real growth over the last 18 months. It does, I know I sound a little like I'm wrapping this up. I'm not, I promise. But today's episode is the final for the last 18 months and it, it, it totals 75 episodes over 18 months, which feels huge. And I thought it was probably worthy of a moment of reflection. I don't know about you, but I've learnt so much, even just my mental dictionary of words has filled to brimming my desire to slow or show, to slow my life and to show empathy to others has bolstered and my faith in humanity really has been rekindled. I didn't realise it needed to be even even 18 months ago. I think I was probably always pretty strong in holding faith for humanity, but I've realised that it's much stronger now. I feel assured that collectivism over individualism is our natural disposition and that is most definitely possible to live simply yet joyfully, but without that earnestness that I perhaps also portrayed 18 months ago. That ritual has the potential to hold us while we navigate change and that the impending scale back of an energy-hungry existence, while inevitable, will still allow for humans to have a place. Maybe I did and maybe I didn't wonder about that before this all began, but now I feel reassured. So... They're my bread-making inspired musings and I would really love to know from you guys, our weekly diehard listeners, what Future Steading has become for you. You whack us in your ears every Monday and, and you trust that we'll bring something worthwhile to you but then you generously offer feedback and financial support to spur us on and so we do and suddenly there's 25 episodes. No, 75 episodes. My writing's really bad. We're going to take a two-week break Um, So this, today's episode is the very last one of this particular season. 
um, before we go into our next season. And when we return, it's going to be just with 10-week seasons being snuck, one being snuck in before Chrissy, and that'll be our format ongoing with the aim of delivering four 10-week seasons each year. That's really about maintaining the ability to do this. And we want to make sure that everyone can access this pod for free. We will continue to have opportunities for you guys to support us if you wish to, but we don't ever want to put it put it in a position where you have to sit by, you have to go behind a paywall in order to access these conversations because we think they're important. Okay, all of that before I've even got to today's conversation. Now for a change of pace. Today we're chatting with Paul West or Westy. I laughed a lot during our chat and despite having never met him, I have to say he's immediately comfortable to share and he kind of felt a little bit like my brother or everyone's brother, the colloquial brother. He's really good at telling a tale. He's really quick to crack a joke and this convo is whip fast so it's a perfect way to wrap up the season. We all know this lad's smiling face from the River Cottage series which although created for camera does actually reflect Westy down to the ground. Practical, curious, grounded and seriously fun. While he's worked in the heady kitchens of top restaurants and hosted reality TV shows and now he's a radio program host and he's about to launch a book, you'll get the idea that he's still a salt-of-the-earth kind of guy who trusts his instincts and makes decisions free from the shackles of ego. Could that be possible? Big call, but I feel like it's kind of true. I couldn't have picked a better conversation to wrap the season with and I hope that this his stories make you laugh too and fill your cup and tide you over for a couple of weeks till we see you again on the 11th of October. Take care, everyone. Is it like this is our first date? Because... Yeah. <laughs> in, the dig- in the digital age. Digi-date. I feel like... um. This whole idea of my crazy brothers could either be <laughs> bloody amazing or a complete disaster. And I have pained over what my island foods are. Yes. I, I, I'm so jealous of Bo uh, and how, you know, at the, cons- at the inception of the idea, he's like, yeah, and I'm just going to have uh, green bananas, uh, licorice and uh, sourdough. Easy. But he can say that because they have been his island food since he was seven. Forever. And they have honestly been his island foods for his entire life. He knows. Yeah, I I, um, I think mine will change another hundred times between now and then as I try to, like, balance practicality with uh, enjoyment. Uh, do you know, uh, and I, we are recording, so maybe we will just share this bit with our listeners, but um, okay. I ran mine past the Cairo and she completely poo-pooed two of the, those that I had. I wanted to do tasty <laughs> cheese and she's like, no, nope, you're not taking that for three days on an island. And she's replaced it with almonds. <laughs> oh, 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 come on. Yeah, I know. Uh, and, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm uncertain about, you know, ease of preparation as well. It's, uh, you know, something that you can just eat immediately uh, after hitting the island or something that you need a little bit of, like, time to prepare. Because what else are you doing so on an island? For those who are listening to us ramble, what we're going on about is – um, Bo Miles, who we have interviewed on the show in the past, and he's in fact one of our most downloaded interviews, even though it was a bit rambly and the sound was crap. He comes up with hairbrained ideas all the time. One of them is that he lived on his body weight in beans for a six-week period of his life. Um, he did manage to make a baby during that time, so it kind of been all bad. But um, his latest idea is to put 
two foodies, being Westy and I, on an island with himself, who is a eater. He does not consider an himself an eaty, an eaty versus foodie. He says, "I just don't see food as something that you need to spend time with." He understands the cultural significance of it, but he anyway is going to put us all on an island that we're going to paddle to, and for three days we're going to eat nothing but our three island foods. And so we're doing that in January, although the dates keep shifting. And um, well, this is the first time we've met, but we are going to hang out on an island together and eat nothing but whatever the heck we decide we're taking. <laughs> So maybe that's the perfect segue into the fact that food is something that has played a massive role in your life. You're a chef and yes. you are the face behind uh, River Cottage that we're also familiar with. Has food been something that has been in your blood since you were born? Clearly no. three times a day. Or have you adopted it as an adult? It's something I definitely came to as an adult. I think my my family culture of food growing up was more on the eaty side. Uh, I come from a very, you know, kind of hardworking, working class family. Mum and dad both worked uh, pretty much throughout the entirety of my childhood. Uh, and it was a very functional affair. It was on the table every night at six o'clock, uh, meat and three veg without fail with very, very little variation over the course of the 17 and a half years that I lived at home. So it was it was never really something that was uh, that we built a great deal of culture around. It, I don't think so, but like obviously, I ate well and I I never went without. So so don't get me wrong. I'm not like going. Oh, I had this miserable childhood with eating three <laughs> meals a day. It was terrible. But you know, I didn't have like yogurt till I was in my teens. I didn't have olives till I moved out of home. And and we lived in a little, you know, country town in rural New South Wales, population 900. Uh, and you know, so there wasn't a great. You know, we had a tiny little independent supermarket that actually had embalmed cats up in the rafter. You know, so it was a, so the fresh produce was a pretty miserable experience there. Uh, and so, yeah, we we didn't really have a great deal of uh, of, of of food culture, um, but. You know, we still enjoyed it and we still sat around the table every night as a family, but it definitely wasn't until I moved out of home that I guess I realised just how little food culture that I personally had, uh, that I didn't, hadn't really learnt how to cook whatsoever. I think I was interested in it as a kid. I remember like mum had like those, um, like a 26 edition, oh, you see them in op shops every now and then. They were like an Australian food encyclopedia, like some sort of compendium of like soup. gold lettering? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. and uh, I remember on school holidays once uh, when my grandmother was looking after me, like kind of flicking through those and going, I'm going to try some of this stuff and trying to make some meatballs and having it as a, like a massive disaster. But, you know, it was cool. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't until I like really moved out of home that I was like, wow, this is, um, I wish I was a little bit more skilled in this set because now you're feeding yourself and then when you you know when you first move out of home it's not like you have the kind of financial luxury of uh of being able to eat out three times a day you've kind of got to learn uh, that drift no. and economy uh and I, my, like the, the the moment that really sticks out for me is like living in a share house with four 18 year old guys in newcastle and it was my turn to rustle up some sort of dinner because we had like a bit of a roster going on and I remember we had raw rice, uh, in <laughs> rice uh, and we had frozen peas from like the various bruising that all of us would uh, incur uh, over a weekly basis and, um, and some ham. And I was like, oh, okay, and some soy sauce. And I was like, I know what all that makes. I can do the mathematics on that. That equals fried rice. 
And, you know, this is pre-YouTube uh, where you could just look up, you know, a Kylie Kwong masterclass on how to make the best fried rice ever. Uh, and I just, you know, fancied myself as a pretty practical individual. So I sounded it out, fried rice, fried, fried rice, fried rice. And, uh, you know, I chopped up the ham and got the peas out and put a pan on the stove, filled it, you know, with some oil and just put the raw rice in there. And, uh, and like stirring it, never cooked rice in my life, stirred it, stirred it, stirred it. And like after about half an hour, like the, the rice, rather than being cooked and fluffy, like I kind of imagined it would become, took on the texture of some sort of like polished diamond. Uh, <laughs> yes, like I'd, right. I turned it into these incredibly hard little stones. And I'm like, why isn't this, wasn't this working? I'm doing what it says on the instruction, fried did, rice, fried did the, rice. Did the fellas eat it? We did. <laughs> we did. We kind of suffered through it. Well, you are hungry, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Crunch, crunch. Uh, and needless to say, I really, I was kind of relieved of cooking duties for a while after that. A guy that actually um, was then went on to become the house cook uh, was a guy that bought like a, a flat sandwich press uh, and figured out you could get really cheap minute steaks from the butcher and would just come and put an entire minute steak in the sandwich press and drop the top on it and slice that up and would have it with like, you know, white bread and barbecue sauce and some onion and stuff. Because he was like a lord after that. He's like, look at this, boys. I've figured out dinner. So I like to tell that story, Jade, because, you know, people say that they, you know, they didn't have a food culture or they, you know, starting from a very low base, it's too difficult to do. And if, if I can get to where I am, starting from that base as an 18-year-old, <laughs> uh, then I think really it's kind of possible for anyone to engage in having a food culture in some way. So clearly there was, there was some time and some significant learning journey yes. between that point in time and Vudamon days. Yes. So I, um, I realized also that I'd grown up in a nuclear family in a very small country town and that I wasn't uh, a particularly worldly individual, that there was a kind of big world out there that I had really yet to experience. So I, um, I set out to kind of give myself a low cost education by beginning to hitchhike around Australia at the age of 20. And, uh, that took me to Tasmania where I kind of ran out of my already very meager funds and was I was talking to someone at a hostel about it and they suggested that I um sign up for the woofing organization which is uh you know I'm sure many of your listeners would be familiar mm. with it but for those that aren't it's mm, we have workers lots of woofers, woofers so we've talked about woofing quite a yeah. bit mm. I love woofing such it's such a great great organization I'd never heard of it and um I really I was like this sounds great four hours work for food and accommodation as like a 20 year old man, young man. I was like, oh, that's a great deal for me. Uh, but I don't know so much about the person who will be hosting me. Uh, and I was like, oh, you know, I'll work from 10 till 2 and I'll just eat all these massive meals. It'll be great. Um, and then so I signed up and I got the book and I was in Launceston uh, in, in Tassie at the time. And so I looked for some stuff around that area and I kind of stumbled across uh, a pretty good sounding farm. It was a gentleman by the name of Gilles Carabin. And he was a, he's a Frenchman, uh, emigrated to Australia in his early 20s as a, as a kind of carpenter house builder. And um, his farm was about half an hour outside of Launceston, I think about half an hour, at Sheffield, just outside of Sheffield at the foothills of Mount Roland. And um, I was, called him up and he said, sure, come, come out. 
and uh, went out and, uh, you know, he said, well, I remember the first day I got there, he's like, oh, Paul, you look, you look rough. <laughs> I, won't, I, won't do, I won't do his very thick accent for, you know, for fear of insulting any of your know, French listeners. Uh, and he said, look, just have some dinner and go to bed and we'll, we'll, we'll start it. In the, we'll get stuck in in the morning. And um, I remember thinking, oh, this is great, and sleeping down in my little cabin that he kind of built. And, uh, and then kind of the door knocking at 5 a.m. in the morning, Paul, time to get up. I was like, oh, 5 o'clock in the morning. Oh, this is when I go to bed, not when I wake up, Jill. Um, and uh, he's like, come up to the main house. We're, you know, we've got breakfast on, we'll get stuck in. And, but on the way up, pick some, you know, pick some fruit from the orchard. And I kind of realised that I'd never done that. And it was this beautiful autumn Tasmanian morning just, just before, you know, first light, sun's yet to come up, heavy dew prime home fruit season uh, and this had this really magnificent orchard with these full-size standard trees and just picking these incredible apples that were covered in dew and crisp from the cold night and kind of biting into one and just realising that it, that was the first apple that I'd ever tasted, mm. you know, having only ever got them from supermarkets or little, you know, kind of country independent general stores where they'd been sitting there for six months, slowly deteriorating and and I stayed, I stayed with Jill for a month and ended up just working from sun up to sundown with him because mm-hmm. the, the work was just so amazing. Like I'd, I'd never realised that you could work like that uh, on a small farm where it's incredibly varied and interesting and physical without being exhausting. You know, it's not back-breaking labour. It's hard, it's, it's, it's hard work, but you're not, you feel, you know, you feel kind of, yeah, you feel alive and at the end of the day you sleep really well and you wake up and you're a little bit tired in the morning but then once you get moving and have a coffee and have some, you know, fruit and porridge, you're, you're ready to do it all over again and you can do it day after day after day. And, you know, I'd, I'd kind of been living a, a kind of a, the rough life of a vagrant and, you know, as Jill said, I looked like crap and after <laughs> two weeks there I was like, I was like I had superpowers, like my eyes were crystal clear and my skin was glowing and I'd never felt so amazing in my life and and he he grew up out in a village outside of Lyon in in France so it's uh you know obviously a kind of a part of the country that has a very strong market culture and small farming culture and he'd basically gone about recreating that in his little patch of northern Tasmania only 60 acres up there and all the work we did in some way fed us or fed the broader community or was a tool for barter and we always we ate outside our lunches and we were always trading you know we'd like take a bag of apples and i'd ride down to a a dairy you know on a push bike a kilometer down the road and fill up you know a couple of bottles of raw milk straight from the vat and leave the apples hanging on there for the dairy farmer and people were always stuck in and out and this you know he didn't use any chemicals on his farm and it was just this you know this this ecology this life there was insects and birds and mammals and all kinds of crazy stuff uh you know hanging around all over the shop and uh it just clicked to me. I was like, I was 20 and, you know, I, I hadn't really, I didn't have a trade and hadn't done a degree. And I was, you know, kind of rudderless in that way. And, you know, just kind of stumbling around the countryside. But I, when I experienced Jill's way of life, I was like, wow, this is, this is the loftiest ideal for human life. Like how, how could it possibly get better than this? You know, it's the, uh, using your body, using your mind, you're like, you're connected with the natural world around you and your broader community. And I was like, well, this is what I want to do. Uh, and so I stayed with Jill 
you know, and kind of wean as much uh, knowledge and, and enjoyment as I could from from that amazing experience. And but then, you know, being twenty, I was kind of got a bit got the feet got itchy again, and I kept traveling around, and um, eventually got back to Newcastle, which is you know the nearest city to where I grew up, and was kind of floating back through share house lifestyle again there. And, I thought, well, I still didn't have a job or a trade and I kind of had a, a semi-decent handle on, on kind of growing at that stage, like, the you know, the beginning stages of it anyway, but I still couldn't cook to save myself, so I took on a chef's approach. I was washing dishes for a mate, actually, as a casual dishwasher and uh, one of his apprentices quit and I was like, oh, Simon, why don't you just put me on as an apprentice? I, I could do this. And he, um, he, he obviously jumped on that idea because it was – cheaper for him to pay me 40 hours a week as a first year apprentice than it was for 15 hours a week as a casual dishwasher and I'd still do the 15 hours a week of dishwashing plus all the other you know the other bits that young uh, apprentice chefs have to get stuck into so and that that was at a that restaurant I mean that's a far cry from where I kind of ended up to finish my trade at Vietnamon but um it was more of a tax write-off for a uh, for a, use, a guy that has a chain of used car sales yards uh, in Sydney, and he sent his kind of wife that I'm not sure that he got on very well with up to Newcastle to run this tax toll. Oh, uh, so I can you listening to this pod, so you can say whatever you like. I, I, think, so. <laughs> I think it's unlikely he's alive, actually. They both, uh, they both weren't, you know, he and his partner, neither of them were in a very good physical state. Uh, it was just, but that was like one of those kind of crazy hospitality ventures that are, that are out there that you're just like, eh. There's all kinds of people in the world and there's all kinds of stuff happening on a daily basis. It was, it was pretty wild. I think that the choice, and as rough as it sounds, it gave you a chance to cut your teeth and step up into, you know, a whole sphere, a whole, whole world of experience that you may not have otherwise had. Yeah. Well, I, I realised after six months there that I was probably learning more bad habits than good habits uh, okay. from, from, from the hospitality game. And I'd heard on the grapevine that a, a cafe – restaurant just up the road about five doors down uh the owner's troubled son had returned from london where he was the head chef for marco pierre white at mirabelle and and had kind of come back to sydney and kind of lost his way a little bit so they kind of you know brought him home to the family nest and propped him up with a job and i was like oh that sounds like a great mentor to learn off <laughs> so i uh, i went and applied for a job there to work under this this guy and um you know, as again, young, impressionable apprentice, and he'd, you know, kind of would tell me the stories of that that world of fine dining in London and Sydney, and and I was kind of wide eyed and you know listening to it, and I worked there for another six months until he unravelled again and left. And uh, <laughs> have you watched that like, fantastic oh. ABC series Aftertaste? I haven't. I've seen the I saw, I've seen the previews to it. In fact, I, I, I host ABC Breakfast Radio. I played the promo for that when it was on. I feel like a hundred times, but it, it sounded all too all you too may familiar. Have Jane. I was yeah, like, oh, I, was I know this. I know, this, I know these, these voices, that tone. Um, <laughs> so that was in Newcastle. And when he left, I was like, well, there's nowhere really in Newcastle that I could, you know, get a taste of that that life that he that he'd kind of you know told tales of. So I didn't want to live in Sydney because that was just a bit of a stretch from moving to Newcastle to Sydney, a bit too much of a bustling metropolis. So I thought, I'm going to go to Melbourne. And I went and got a, a copy of the, or ordered a copy of the Age Good Food Guide because we only had the Sydney Morning Herald one. And this is before it was online. Mm-hmm. And they sent it to me and I started at the started at the top. Uh, and the f- number one restaurant at the time was Foodamon. 
and I just sent them, you know, an email. Uh, and they, I was like, oh, you know, kind of begged to have a trial, uh, you know, like, oh, I'm just an apprentice. I'd love the opportunity to work in this hallowed temple of cuisine, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and I realized pretty quickly that when they got back within six hours of me sending it, uh, that places like that, they're, they're always looking for fresh flesh for the fire. <laughs> they are anyone that uh, wants to put their hand up to attempt to work under those conditions is always welcome to come and have a try. And, and they're like, singed. yeah, we'd love you to come have a trial. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so I spent an entire week's wage as a first-year apprentice on return tickets to Melbourne uh, and one night's accommodation to do this trial. And uh, I stupidly, having never flown to Melbourne, got tickets to Avalon, uh, which <laughs> ended up costing me half my next week's wage in yeah. taxi fares from, from Geelong to the city. Uh and just remember stepping off the plane at Avalon going, ah, oh, here we go. And then seeing, you know, the tiny little ripple of the city in the distance going, wow, Melbourne Airport is oh, a really way. long way from the city. What are these crazy Victorians. Um, and then, you know, getting off at, uh, what was it? Southern Cross, uh, Spencer Street at the time. It wasn't yet Southern Cross and walking down little Collins Street and, you know, kind of standing out the front of the doors, the big red door of, uh, you know, the Voodamon restaurant when it was on little Collins Street. And it was Monday night, so there was no restaurant, but kind of standing there and taking a moment and breathing, going, I've got to be back here tomorrow. And then going to my hostel up on Nicholson Street where it was, um, there was a rugby union game happening between England and Australia. Yes. Uh, and so, so obviously the hostel was full of English people watching the, uh, watching the football until 4am in the morning. <laughs> yeah. All chanting and carrying on. And I'm in like a shared dorm. So I think I had about two hours sleep and then went in for my first 16 hour oh, day, Jesus. uh, at the coal face of a restaurant like that. And yeah, it was, um, that was definitely a crash landing into that, into that world. The things <laughs> you can do in your twenties. And since then yeah. you've sort of, um, You've moved to a place where you've come out of the heady, lofty heights of of fine dining and fine cuisine, and you've put your hands in the dirt. Yeah, well, I, I, so I realised there was a point in towards the end of my second year at Vudamon where, and when you're working these like massive sixteen hour adrenaline dump days, uh, there's a time between kind of three and five in the afternoon between lunch service and dinner service where you just, you kind of go a little bit loopy uh, where your body's going through some seriously weird chemical shifts uh, because of the nature of the work. And um, I remember just kind of standing there, you know, off in my own imaginary world and thinking about the time that I had with Jill in Tasmania and realizing that that was the, the catalyst for me embracing this lifestyle uh, and then kind of realizing where I was and what I was doing and not seeing sunlight and not being connected to the outdoors in any way and spending 90 hours a week in a stainless steel box in the heart of a city. Went, what the hell am I doing here? You know, it's like I'm, I'm, I've kind of got enough skill from this to be able to cook really well now. Uh, I think that's all I need from this. Like I'm not going to pursue this life, this lifestyle. Uh, I don't want to be a, a, a haute cuisine chef or, a, you know, a fine dining chef. Um, and so I kind of handed in my resignation that afternoon, but I gave a six-month resignation because it's the only way you could uh, it's the only way you could quit without being shamed out, actually, in those places. So, <laughs> And then six months later in the last day, I was like, and that's me, guys. Uh, check with the office. That was the final day. See you later. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, but, yeah, I mean, it just made me realize that, you know, that, that, 
that that part of food uh, that you know that kind of pointy end of the hospitality of the the cookery field it, it wasn't complete for me you know there wasn't this um you know it was really lacking a component and that component for me was the kind of the backbone of the whole experience and that was actually being outside and playing a hand in the creation of that food in the first place um, so and I, left, I think understanding uh, the vagaries I, of that creation process because I think until you truly understand those yeah. vagaries, you don't value the stuff that's going on the floor because it doesn't fit the, the no. curated, plated version of what they want to present to you. And yeah. so much of that in my mind feels so entirely wasteful. Yeah, and fine dining is, I mean, is really bad for that. I mean, there, there's a, there's components of it where obviously sometimes my, you know, you're paying for such premium ingredients that that the chef would actually go through the bins to make sure that you had filleted the fish correctly, and you know you weren't throwing too much away. Uh, and wait a second, hello Bowie, what's up, mate? You want to say hello to Jade? No, it's just talking to here. Sorry, my hi dad, hello sweetheart. Sorry. My four-year-old's tracked me down. Bye. He's off. All right. Bye. You, wanna, you go eat your blueberries and I'll be. Bye, okay. I'll come back to you in a second, mate. Okay. <laughs> you know, so there was, there was like a, there was a, a kind of loathing of waste purely on a cost, cost front because uh, you were paying for it. So, and, and that's what I liked about, one thing I liked about that in the fine dining world is that they kind of did teach you to, to maximize the usage of stuff. But that said, you're still cutting off the edges of carrots and stuff so they're square, you know, to, to make a brunoir or, or whatever. And we, I also, they, there was a real, at that level, real um, instruction around what good produce was and we were expected to really know and to go through any food delivery with a fine-tooth comb and not accept anything that was subpar. So we knew what good produce looked like uh, but you, you, you're right in that you don't understand what it takes to create it. Yeah. That you know we that 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 we as chefs I think kind of think that they're the the wizards, they're the masters because they know the and culinary they are, techniques. They absolutely, are you can't take oh, that from them ever. But uh, I just I feel like without the food in the first place, and <clears throat> so few people truly understand how bloody hard it is to get yeah. perfect looking food. Yeah, and I think that's something that I didn't appreciate until I started to really try my hand at growing my own, you know, food through the River Cottage experience. Was that it's not, it's not enough just to throw a carrot seed in the ground and hope for an amazing carrot because you grew it yourself. Anyone that's grown their own food will know that it's like there's just as many kind of disaster crops as there are carrots amazing especially. crops. There's, that was an interesting choice of seeds. Exactly. Jesus, yeah. carrots! They keep eluding you. Ah. Yeah, it makes it super challenging, and so it's, I, I, I very quickly came to realise that the that kind of level and skill of the 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 top end chefs was equally matched by each producer of each different ingredient to you know to be able to create amazing beef, to be able to grow crisp, juicy, sweet apples, to be able to grow straight and sweet uh, carrots, and uh, that was something that I've, I've really come to appreciate. More, more recently, I think. Mm. And I know, you know, you, you just um, had a beautiful little interruption there. From, was that Bowie or Otto? Bowie. That was, that was Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> from that little voice. Hello, Dada. Um, Hello. You, you have said in the past that fatherhood has changed you. I know that you walked away from the heady heights of fine dining and you embraced life 
at River Cottage and I do want to talk a bit more about that in a second because I reckon you'll give me the inside where you can't ask lots yeah. of people that. <laughs> um, um, but you've also talked a lot about how fatherhood has changed you and I feel like nearly everybody that we've had on the show has had some kind of catalytic moment where they've gone, guess what, I don't want to do that anymore. Something changed them. It might have been a documentary. Often for women it's having children. Rarely do, do dads say the same thing but I've heard you say that in other interviews, it would be great to understand how it's changed you. Yeah, I think that, you know, when you're, well, at least for myself anyway, I don't want to generalise for the entire population, but in your pre-child life, you don't, you can kind of really concentrate on what it is about yourself that you want to work on or you want to improve or where you want to go and what you want from life. But I realised very quickly, very early on in the piece after our first kid was born that 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 changes dramatically uh, or did for me when I was a kid when you realise that actually there's there's a living, breathing human being that is entirely dependent on you and your partner uh, for its sustenance and for its guidance in the world. And I guess I, I just realised that I I wanted to do it well. You know, I didn't want to, I just didn't want to be like a phone-it-in dad and be like, oh, they'll be right. I'll just go out and work and, you know, they'll find their own way. Kids are tough. Kids are re- resilient. You know, they'll be, they'll be good. Look, uh, I wanted to actually be very hands-on and, and to, you know, present. kind of, yeah, really present and try to, you know, that said, I'm, you know, here I am on an interview with my kid in a TV, in front of the TV <laughs> in another room. Sorry, Bo, but that in a sec, mate. Sorry, dad's really sorry about that. But, you know, they, it's, it's a balance. It's a balance, Jade. And, um, it's the they, uh, and I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, he's coming back. You coming back, Bowie? He's coming in. Yes, mate. Yes, my gorgeous son, who I love very deeply. Okay, why don't you play with your little animals for a little bit then, and I'll come out and play with you in a second. Okay. Ah, see, there you go. Gold standard parenting, right there. Right there. One hundred and one. Don't interrupt me, boy. I'm on the phone. I told you. If the office door's shut, you don't come in. Um. <laughs> And I mean, I feel quite yeah excited by the prospects because it feels like uh, you know there's no there's no great framework for for fatherhood anymore. You know, like the when I talk to most of the people of my vintage, I'm in my late 30s. You know, my, my partner, my friends, about you know the kind of roles that their fathers played in their life. It's very different to the expectation uh, of fathering now. So there's not you haven't got this kind of cultural. Uh, yeah, framework or background that you can that you can lean on mm. in the same way, mm. and so it was, it's been a really exciting proposition for me to be able to be that kind of hands-on parent and father, mm. and, and reframe I guess it and I make your own that, rules. Yeah, exactly, and to redefine it and to take ownership of what I want fatherhood to be and what I want to you know what I want out of it and what I hope that my children and my partner get out of me embracing that role. And I think I, retrospectively, I look back on the time that I spent in the restaurant uh, game, and the, the the greatest thing that it give that gave me was a trade that I can use to, you know, feed a family three times a day, you know, mm. with skill and ease. You know, it's it's not it's not, you know, it's not <laughs> it doesn't send me into a meltdown at the idea of having to to cook dinner for a family. You know, whereas my old man cooked uh, twice. <laughs> in my twice entire childhood, twice. <laughs> twice, no, just twice. Yeah, yeah. Same dish, sausage curry both times. I mean, he'd cook a barbecue on Sundays, 
Uh, but but for in terms of like week dinners, he like cooked yeah twice. And, times and have changed, Mister West. So. Times have changed. Yeah, they have, and I'm and I'm very grateful for it. You know, it's uh because it's such that 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 food culture and that nutrition culture that that we impart on our children informs them for the rest of their life. Yeah. You know, it's it's it kind of it's a foundation, whether it's subconscious or conscious. You know, whether it's the nutrition that we're giving them and they're receiving subconsciously or the culture that we build around food and experience with them consciously, they're the patterns uh, that are setting them up for the remainder of their life. And, you know, we're, we've, we've lost our way culturally, it feels like, around around what role food plays in our family uh, in, and in ourselves and in our communities. And just to be able to bring that back somewhat, to be able to put it at the forefront where meals are important. It's a, you know, it's what we do to, to kind of nourish ourselves physically and spiritually and mentally by coming together as a family is just it's an incredible thing to be able to, to participate in, you know, and I, um, yeah. I think it's not just the coming together. I think it's the skills and it's the access to seeds and it's the <clears throat> culturally mm. acceptable uh, approach to what it is that you serve and the way in which you serve it. So, you know, in just a hundred years, we've lost lost eighty five percent of our seed varieties. So we just don't have access to those anymore. And in those same yeah. hundred years, we've gone from having eighty percent of people in the back backyard growing their own food to just eight eight percent of people growing food in their backyard. You know, that is a massive, massive yeah. disconnection from understanding where and how and when and why food does or doesn't grow and, yeah. um, you know, with all of that loss goes a fundamental part of our foundational being. As primal humans we have relied and, and come together over the thing that sustains us forever and now we can't because we just don't have those yeah. skills. I, I agree. So, oh, well, obviously I'm, I was going to agree with a lot that you said, Jade, but this I agree very, very strongly on that, like uh, that as in, in terms of like a pure physical being uh, and making its way in the world, the, the kind of nature, the idea of the primal human is that so much of our survival or was revolved around uh, access to food and the security of family. Uh, and so when you have those two things, it just like, it just triggers this cascade of deeply wired well-being circuits in the brain. If you have, you know, if you're eating nutritious food and you're doing it with a, a, a kind of intimate family group or a community of people that you love and respect, then that's, that's what we're hard wired to want. And that's really, if you can satisfy those needs, and that's what I, the realisation that I had mm-hmm. on that woofing farm mm-hmm. in my early 20s was that this is all you need, like the level of happiness from an experience like that, especially if you're then, you know, growing your own food as well and you're doing that that kind of fundamental physical human movement of being outside in the weather and, and you know, moving your body and doing all those kind of natural human movement patterns that come from growing food. You're squatting, you're bending, you're lifting, you're reaching, you're twisting, you're doing all these things that we don't do when we're sitting at a desk working in a computer or or working, uh, you know, in a repetitive kind of hospitality kitchen factory line, production line type setup. So I, I, I just was really kind of astounded when that light bulb clicked for me that I was like, that this is, you know, this is this is what it's about for people. Yeah, and if I we think can, you're minimising the... Uh, I am human, that is nature, disconnect as well. You're suddenly becoming mm. more deeply in tune with it and like our Indigenous forebears, we are re-Indigenising even in the tiniest way. Yes, 
yeah, that appreciation of the the kind of subtle uh, the subtleties of the the natural world, and that was that was the there was two things there that that really helped me have that awakening. And I think one was that after being in a kitchen where you've got these these really intense uh, deadlines, like everything's like a three hour four hour deadline. You're prepping for the next service. You know, at most you might think about prepping for a week out if you've got a big function coming up, but everything's at such an incredibly short time frame and then shifting to food growing where where you're putting the preparation in for um you know for a, a, a plant that you might not see a harvest off for five years yeah. uh, or, or, ten years or maybe you like <laughs> yeah exactly or you're trying to reforest you know a section of of a, of a property where you know you you might not even live to see the benefit of that but you've just you're trying to create the catalyst for to kickstart the ecology there and hopefully help that that bit of country regenerate itself you know rather than being you know something that you steer significantly and then so that was that transition from kitchen to farm really helped me understand that that long frame of ecology you know or just begin to understand it obviously it's nothing we can ever truly grasp or comprehend but and the other one again was having kids and uh and kind of trying to foster some you know nature appreciation in in your own children and and then realizing that they are like the ultimate observers of nature that they yeah. the, the pace that they move the height at which they're at and the wonder with which they experience the world if you are open to them guiding the experience they can show you so much like it's even little bowie that just kind of popped in before even from you know as soon as he could talk he'd be like look at this and he'd be like you, you know standing there from your adult height looking at the ground yeah. like there's nothing there and he'd be like no look and he'd come down and there'd be like these two, you know, nearly microscopic insects having some sort of interaction on the tip of a leaf that he yeah. spotted. And you're like, see, if I never would have seen that, you know, we'll just sort of like blaze past going, come on, we've got to do here. We've got to get to the, we've got to get to the post office, you know, come on, come on, come on, in the car, come on, whatever. And you're yeah. just letting kid, children guide you with their pace and wonder um, because they're, you know, all creatures have instinct. Uh, and I think, you know, where our instincts suppressed somewhat by society and culture these days but it's still so alive in children to have that that kind of nature connection and that that wonder at the natural world and yeah they well, are, I think they are just really part of it guides. they haven't actually uh, yeah. academically considered their role in it they are just part of it and they're there they're there they're they're in, in it. it and they're living it and if you can as an adult start to sort of channel some of that wonder. It really, we went walking this morning and we were in the mud and the, it was frosty, but there were, we've had lots and lots and lots of rain and we were both scampering around, um, you know, really muddy, slippery rocks and paths and puddles and, and we felt like kids and we both said, isn't it amazing to feel like kids again? Yeah. And I just, yeah, wish- kids have got it, kids have got it made. <laughs> well, they, they know, they know the secret for long. Yeah, 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 that's right. Okay, so let's talk about River Cottage because it's okay. – it's, Okay, right. Are we ready? We can do this? Oh, I'm ready. I'm primed. Let me take a deep breath. <laughs> it was a big part of who we know – we all know you as. Um, but, you know, it's a television show. It's not real life. And yes. it's it wasn't your life. You still live in that region, I know, and um, it would be great to understand – all of the things that you were explaining to us made you feel like you were the Adonis of all things homesteading. 
But I'm sure that yeah. in, the, in reality you were still having a pretty steep learning curve as well. And then post River Cottage, did you have the ability to take all of those skills and continue to apply them or was the reality of it too big, too steep, too hard or did it just was it just uh, the tip of the iceberg? So there was for me it was there was a couple of really steep learning curves in there. There was obviously the, 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 you know, the, the visible one on screen of me taking on a small, you know, 20 acre holding and, and, and trying to grow food and community off that, uh, which, you know, I think we kind of plotted quite well over the four seasons of the program, the trials and the tribulations. Um, I mean, I, so I lived there for the first year on the farm and then for the subsequent three seasons, I lived on a neighboring property uh, because what you didn't see on screen was the the kind of staff of about 12, anywhere between 12 and 50 people that would be there, depending on, you know, what stage of the production it was at. Um, and, you know, the, the, the house that wasn't the kitchen uh, and the main dining area uh, was, you know, kind of office space. There was, you know, various like production offices and I just had this single bedroom you know, and there'd be lighting rigs in my room and right. you'd do a 10 hour shoot day. And then, and then there'd still be people hanging around, you know, wanting to have beers and you just frazzled, you know, and just, I'd just like, I'd walk up to the back of the property with the dog and sit on a ridge and wait till I saw all the cars disappear and then <laughs> the you know, rematerialize. So I'm like, oh, sorry, I missed you guys yesterday. Oh, I just, I was just taking Digger for a walk and he was really loving it. Um, <laughs> but that said, I was time. still there. I was still there, you know, 365 days a year doing doing the farm work uh so that 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 component of it was was real uh right. for so me you at were least in anyway fact i was in tra- there living it and they were coming in and, yeah, yeah yeah and snapping yeah. it okay. i was I, yeah exactly you know so i was like i was i was the the, the the i guess the ironic thing was that the time that i would be doing the least genuine farm work was when we were filming because it's yeah. so like the, the nature of production, especially for a you know an old school high production value lifestyle program like River Cottage, was that it was you know it takes a long time to do anything. Yeah, and they've you know they've got these kind of large crews, so I'd, I'd I'd still get up and milk the cow before before we kicked off and uh, you know and do all the rounds with the animals, but we definitely went into like a, a kind of holding pattern more so than. You know, more so than a than a kind of really active kind of farming role for me. But then as soon as production stopped and everyone buggered off and it was just me and the farm and my partner and eventually my oldest kid, that's when I really kind of got down to it. Uh, and and really got stuck into the to that kind of amazing farm work. So and that, so yeah, it was I mean that was the I guess that's the kind of TV part of it was, you know, was a, a steep learning curve, learning to manage that property and and learning to balance it with with what was a, a totally new craft for me, and that's that that craft of presenting and 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 being a part of a television production, because that's that was a that was a really steep learning curve. I remember that you know, so I, I, I was living in Tasmania and growing veggies in a backyard and working as a chef and keeping chooks and all that, and uh, got the job. And they, you know, they too, they're like, we start production in two weeks, and I was like, okay. And so from I went for in a two week period, went from you know just living this kind of great anonymous life in Tasmania to to flying to Sydney, then coming down to the farm and and then, you know, meeting Hugh Fernley Winningstall on camera for the first time. Right. Who was like a, a hero of mine. So really in the deep end. And it was such a, a coup for the Australian kind of 
media to to have the franchise over here that I remember the first cooking day we did. I'd never, you know, cooked in front of an audience, done lots of cooking, but never, uh-huh. you know, with all eyes on type thing. And it was me on camera, uh, but you just see me in the kitchen if you look back at episode one. Uh, but what I was looking at was a room full of 50 people, uh, you know. So there was like all the top brass from Foxtel. There was all the top brass from the UK production company. There was all the Australian production company. There was local state and national media there. And then right at the back of the room, which I could just, I just had this like tunnel vision straight to it, sitting on this leather chair with one leg crossed and like his kind of hands up against his nose and that kind of like thoughtful prayer watching way was Hugh watching the first person to ever kind of, you know, yeah, stand in his role, you know, of like that was his baby, River Cottage, and he was watching the very first segment of someone else present River Cottage and just that that pressure was unbelievable. Like Actually, I've never I'm really a bit felt awkward anything on your like now. that again. Yeah, it was intense. Oh, God, it was intense. And I just, you know, I kind of held it together and and then just like went out to my private bedroom and just kind of sat there and just like my brain melted and just I couldn't speak and, you know, it took, it took about half an hour to re, recalibrate and realise that that's what I was in for. Um, so that was a really steep learning curve uh, along with the farming kind of component of it. But I think what I, you know, what I learned from the farm uh, was that, you know, it's hard, it's hard work and I don't think anyone appreciates it. And I actually feel like a little bit of it, that the program in a way also did a little bit of a disservice to people because, uh, you know, because it's, it, it just showed the kind of like the, what I used to like to refer to it, uh, you know, towards the end of the series, jokingly with the production staff was the kind of like the white tablecloth, you know, under the tree part of small farming. <laughs> you know, it's all like, oh, this is great. Look at us. We're just, we're just having another great long lunch out under the tree. This is great. Oh, look, someone just did $5,000 worth of fencing for us. Let's let's pay him with Monte Carlos. How good's this? You know, it's, uh, how good is living in the country? Uh, you know, and you didn't see the, you know, you didn't see the fences blowing down in the middle of the night, you know, and having to like regain livestock and, you know, having to go through all that, that, that stuff that you have to do. Yeah, exactly. All just that, that daily stuff that happens on a small farm, you know, and also that, that kind of, it was always something new. That was something that, that I didn't think that the nature of small farming didn't gel with the nature of the TV production because television, you know, you always kind of got to be moving on to the next project, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing for interest for the viewer. But really when it's about growing anything or small farming, or even if it's in your backyard, it's about the refinement of that same task, that same process over seasons, decades, years, a lifetime. And that makes for fantastic knowledge, but it makes for crappy television. (laughs) You know, they they weren't interested in that. I love that you've brought that up because we talk a lot about ritual as well and that seasonal rhythm that we all need to build. And even if you're not growing food at a farm scale, even if you're just growing a, a few pots of it on your back balcony, which is why future steading can be relevant to everybody, you don't have to be homesteading, is that that rhythm, that cyclical nature of of daily rituals, seasonal rituals, annual rituals is really, really important. Yeah, it makes for crappy TV, but it actually makes for beautiful mm. um, exclamation marks right across your year. What yes. do you now have? Now that you've you've lived you've lived about five lives. We've just heard about five lives all in in one five <laughs> minute interview, but you've lived all of these different <laughs> ways. How have you popped out at the other end to decide 
today, this is how you'll live with your family in the true sense and what does that look like from a ritual and routine and rhythm perspective? So I think for me it was like a, a kind of an amalgamation of all those experiences which makes sense and and we're actually, we're about 15 minutes away from the farm now uh, in Bermagui, which is a, a village of about two and a half thousand people and we live right in the middle of town. We're like opposite the post office. We're so central, uh, you know, and on an 850 square metre block in the middle of town. And um, so that for us, people, I tell people, and they're like, what, you left the farm? Like, that's crazy. Like, what would you, you've got living this like beautiful life in Tilbury and you left the farm. Well, first I didn't really have a choice to leave the farm because it was, I never owned it. The production company did. So when the show was dropped, the, they sold it, you know, for a handsome profit. So I was kind of left after all that work with nowhere to, you know, nowhere to be. And so we moved into into Burmy and I think for me it was a, a part of an experience that I had. On I went to Italy once uh, in my twenties and and I kind of observed how these these like older Western cultures uh, framed food growing uh, and you've had these like incredible little villages where people live with a great deal of density around a piazza uh, and then there was all food production in the immediacy around it and I, I guess. You know, especially having two young kids that we, we wanted to be uh, in the kind of social hub of a community mm. uh, and where we, can, where we can have that interaction on a daily basis, that kind of piazza style interaction where you're out, you're on foot in the community and, you're, you know, you're, you're interacting with, with the, all the different members of the community and the children get to feel that sense of ownership and, and place uh, living in that community. Mm, and belonging. And, uh and, but yeah, exactly. And the, you know, they they know the butcher, they know the baker. They they stop and speak to people that know them on the street, even though they're both six and four. They they're not just children to be kind of corralled into kid related activities and not to speak to adults. They're like they get to actually have meaningful conversations with a whole raft of characters in the community that that know them and will see them grow and you know and be a part of their lives. Um, and also, I mean, we get to it's a we're a small house, big block, so we 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 can still grow a lot of food you know yeah, i think i've got last count, we've got about oh, i think we've got about 40 odd fruit trees yeah we've got five chooks and we've uh got hello bowie we've got two little kids we've got a nice big veggie patch so uh for us you know those rituals around the year i guess they come around like things like the first tomato they come around the first apples off the trees they come around the first citrus trees yes gorgeous I'm not going to be long, mate. Oh, okay, I'm not going to be long, okay? Give me five more minutes and then I'm with you, okay? Okay, you too, you do that. Good boy. Um, you know, the, the the rituals then kind of materialise more around uh, what nature is doing, you know, and what, the, what our garden is providing with us and the things that we've watched kind of grow and slowly ripen and then come to maturation. And also, I guess, in more broadly in the community, like when the crayfish are around and when the oysters are at their best pre-spawning in summer and and when you you know, the salmon are on country. the beaches. And, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's pretty good here. It's pretty good. Uh, you know, when like when, you know, the the kind of deer are in different stages of health out in the back country, you know, there's there's all these great kind of food markers that exist uh, around us and, and that we get to kind of celebrate those those shifts in season. I guess also just having that like little bit of observation around like not even just the food, you know, components of it, but, you know, the the various bits of wildlife, like when the seagulls 
you know, fledglings leave the nest and you see them kind of learning to ride the thermals on the cliffs with their parents and then you see them get their full colouring and mark their own territory. And, you know, we've got the whale migration happens here. They're just on the kind of on the move north and then later in the year they'll be back with their calves. So there's all this all this kind of great natural spectacle that we get to bear witness to and and uh, and celebrate. So yeah, I, I find that the, that we've got we've got a very busy calendar when it comes to rituals, Jane. Yeah, it's you like do, uh, and they're beautiful, they're which is awesome, which is you know so grateful for. Yeah, not everybody would have nearly that many opportunities to have them right on their doorstep. I talk often as well about actually maybe I don't on this pod, but in the last couple of weeks I've been doing lots of interviews for the book launch and. I feel like I'm gravitating to a topic or a statement that I make fairly regularly, which is how much is your individual enough? And once you know what your enough is, it allows you to make it as full as you can possibly, possibly make it. Yes. To wrap up today's conversation, I would love to know what your enough looks like. Uh, I think my enough is to happy, healthy children uh, and uh, in my wife and I in, in kind of rude health, uh, a healthy, thriving vegetable garden, fruit trees uh, and chickens uh, to be kind of free from any sort of debt or any sort of, you know, role to an institution like that uh, and, to, and to be able to have that freedom to, to let a uh, non-Gregorian calendar dictate dictate the the rhythms of your life rather than being like oh it's monday i've got to do this it's being like well this is happening at this beach and i'd like to be there for that or you know this is happening in the high country and that's our neighboring region and i I can be up there for that and that that to me is is ample to be able to be a respected member of a community and to have everyone in good health and to you know to have that bit of sovereignty over over the food that my family eats that's 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 heaps (laughs) that is a bloody cracking summary You're a gem. Hey, hey, so that's a wrap on 75 episodes. I'm going to go and have a stiff drink to celebrate that. No, I'm not. You all know I'm not. But um, I am going to go and take two weeks off. It's school holidays and I'm going to spend some time with the kids and we've got woofers arriving tomorrow. So enjoy the next couple of weeks of the beautiful spring that we're all basking in and we will be back on the 11th of October with a season of 10 cracking conversations. Mm -hmm.